Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. Good morning, everybody. My name is Martin. I'm one of the elders of Fleet Baptist Church. Many of us have grown up with the idea that the wise men in the Christmas story were three kings. During these last weeks leading up to Christmas, some of us, I'm sure, will receive from family and friends Christmas cards showing colourful scenes of three kings riding on three camels following a rather large star. We may even get some lovely cards depicting the cuddly baby Jesus lying in a manger with mum and dad looking on at three kings in their colourful robes, kneeling and offering gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. It's that time of year we get out our favourite Christmas carols and sing with Augusto the likes of We Three Kings of Orientar, bearing gifts we travel afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following the yonder star. Around about the 8th century, names were given to the three kings, Melchior, Caspar and Belthazar. These names supposedly representing the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. In the 12th century, the Bishop of Cologne, so the story goes, found three skulls buried together in the Holy Land. They were found with all their eye sockets facing towards Bethlehem. And because of this, the powers that be in all their wisdom came to the conclusion that these surely must be, guess what? The three wise kings. If you feel inclined to, you can actually go to the cathedral in Cologne and see for yourself this very ornate golden casket where these three skulls are kept. Matthew informs us that the wise men arrived into Jerusalem after he was born. He doesn't say in the text they offered gifts of, of, to Jesus while he was still wrapped in a manger, uh, in swaddling clothes and still lying in a manger. King Herod, we know, killed all the male children in Bethlehem up to and including two years old. Why would Herod do that if Jesus was still a baby when they visited him? There are so many anomalies of Christ's birth, we can go on giving a number of examples. However, the church's tradition has always been to portray the wise men as kings. The point I'm trying to make is this. When you remove all the church traditional elements of the Christmas scene and begin to dig deeper into scripture, we discover more is going on underneath the surface. There's a lovely proverb Uh, Proverbs 25 that says these words, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of God, uh, but the glory of kings is to search things out. In other words, God in his grace allows those that are prepared to search for him to discover a treasure trove of truth that's hidden just beneath the surface. Well, this morning, with the limited time we have together, I want to scratch a bit deeper into Scripture and find out why Matthew mentions the arrival of these mysterious wise men from the East. Who were they? Matthew's Gospel sees Jesus as the King of the Jews, the one who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament prophets. And this gives us a clue to the reason why they're mentioned. So let's go over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, reading from verse 1 and 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. These wise men were also known as the Magi. So who were the Magi, and where did they come from? Many historians consider them to be Semites, who were the descendants of Noah's son, Shem. In secular history, we know that the Magi were Medes. They came from the ancient nation of the Medes and Persians and lived somewhere in modern-day Iran and Iraq. Like the Levites of the Old Testament, who were the tribal priests of Israel, the Magi were the tribal priests of the Medes. They were skilled in mathematics, science, astronomy, but they also practiced astrology. Unfortunately for the Magi, they didn't separate the science of astronomy to the superstition of astrology. And because of their unique occult powers of divination and their ability to interpret dreams using their astronomical and astrological knowledge, they rose to a place of enormous political power within the Babylonian government. The Magi were so powerful that, that historians have said that no Persian was ever able to be king except under two conditions. The first condition, he had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi. And secondly, he had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. This was known as the law of the Medes and Persians, a law that could never be over, overturned once established, not even by a king, not by a noble, by nobody. In short, the Magi were not kings. They were the, king, the kingmakers of the ancient world. So who are these Magi coming into Jerusalem and seeking a king? To find the answer to this puzzle, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. So let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So here we are. So here are the magi in the king's court. The king has a dream he can't remember. So he says, it's unsettled him and he can't sleep. So he commands the magi to tell him the meaning of the dream. The magi answer the king and say, oh, glorious king, tell us your dream. He can't remember, and as the dialogue continues between them both, he then begins to threaten them with death. Verse 5, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins if you don't tell me the meaning of the dream. Obviously now these magi are getting rather fearful for their lives and stressful, but they still ask the king a second time, O oh, king, mighty king, tell us your dream. The king now resorts to verbal abuse by calling them a bunch of con artists and corrupted liars. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The king is so furious with the Magi, he commands a captain of the guard to go and kill all the wise men of Babylon. And don't forget, this would include Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God has a plan, bless him. 
And he now uses a standoff between the Magi and the king to bring about a decision from the king that would centuries later bring some of these Magi descendants to Jerusalem. Our dear brother Daniel now steps into the row between the king and the Magi and using his diplomacy skills says to the king, verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. I want to come back to the dream in just a moment. But first, let's look at the king's response to Daniel after he reveals to the king his dream. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of all mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Notice Daniel is made chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. God's plan was for Daniel to be given rule and authority over all the magi in the Babylonian empire. God has wonderfully opened up a door of opportunity for Daniel, a way for him to be able to speak the truth of God's word to these pagan magi sorcerers. I'm pretty sure under Daniel's teaching, some of these magi would have come over time to believe in the truth of God's word. They would certainly have become familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament and would have read and studied for themselves Daniel's messianic prophecy of the 70 weeks that you can read in chapter 7. Amazingly, this prophecy of the 70 weeks actually reveals God's timetable for when Jesus would be born in the town of Bethlehem. So these visiting magi, they weren't astrologers and they certainly weren't kings. They were, however, Bible-believing magi, the kingmakers of the ancient world, whose ancestors 600 years previously came to know the God of Israel through the teaching and influence of Daniel the prophet. Okay, let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and fill the whole earth. Daniel sees a huge image of a man. It's made up of different metals, starting from the, the head of gold down to the toes of iron and clay. We know from two and a half thousand years of history who these Gentile powers were, the golden head Babylon, 
the silver chest and arms, the Medes and Persians, the belly and thighs, the Greek empire, and finally the iron legs and the toes of iron and clay, Rome. He tells the king, you'll be okay. This dream won't affect you. But Babylon will be overthrown one day by the Medes and Persians. And then the Medes and Persians in turn will be overrun by the Greeks. And then the Greeks will be removed by the Roman Empire. But in the dream, it clearly reveals that in the last days, the days that we're living in, the Roman Empire or some version of it will be revived by the emergence of ten kingdoms represented on the statue as the ten toes of iron and clay. It's when these kingdoms appear, something truly wonderful takes place. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. A rock cut out of a mountain, but not with human hands, will strike and break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them all to an end. So who is this rock? Matthew tells us, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Isaiah prophesied these words. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. To put Isaiah's words into context, Isaiah was speaking to the scoffers and the boasters of Judah who had rejected the word of the Lord and the law of God. He was announcing that a day will come when he will bring righteousness and judgment to the land through this precious cornerstone. In ancient stone buildings, one stone is crucial. It's always laid first and it's to ensure that the building is plumb and stable. It's a rock that takes the weight of the whole structure. And this rock was called a cornerstone. Jesus is revealed in scripture as the chief cornerstone, the precious cornerstone. Peter says of Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So this rock cut out of a mountain, but not with human hands, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus himself. Unfortunately today, not everyone aligns with the cornerstone. Some accept Christ and some reject him. Jesus was born during the time of a false messiah, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And he came to his own people and demonstrated through signs and wonders the kingdom of God. If you see me, Jesus said, you see my father. Sadly, the leaders and the people of Israel rejected God's kingdom. Instead, they shouted for him to be crucified. And it was on the cross at Calvary where Jesus gave up his life. His life wasn't taken. He gave up his life for the sins, your sin and my sin, and the sin of the world. But in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it tells us that Jesus the rock will return to Jerusalem in the last days, but this time as the king of Israel. 
when he will smash to pieces the last ten kingdoms of Rome and establish the kingdom of God that will never, ever, ever be destroyed. Jesus said he would return one day. But he won't be returning as a servant, but as the king of Israel, as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords. So let's go back to the scene in Matthew where these kingmakers uh, are arriving into Jerusalem. Remember, they're in Jerusalem because of the teaching and influence Daniel had upon their ancestors 600 years previously. They enter the city wearing their distinctive conical hats of varied colors that would indicate to everyone their status of being high office magi, kingmakers of the East, and riding not on camels but on Persian steeds with a retinue of bodyguards, servants, craftsmen, and carrying a whole vast array of gifts. The people of the city would have been looking on in a state of bewildered shock and amazement, but with a sense of foreboding. Why? Because these kingmakers were asking, where is the king of the Jews? Where is the king of the Jews? For we've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. Herod wanted to kill him. The Magi wanted to worship him. What is our response this morning? Are we going to reject him? Or are we going to receive him, receive his kingdom, and bow down in worship? The choice is ours and ours alone. May you have a blessed day. Amen.